from author Ed Teha. If you like salty adventure with crimes as varied as the people on the waterfront, check out Martin Billings. The ex-seal runs a Caribbean freighter with Ugly Bill, managing to get himself dragged into mysteries, conspiracies, and an ocean full of trouble. If you like lighter mysteries, check out Matt Kramer in the surreal Southwest. He's a private investigator in the little town of Silver City, New Mexico. As one reviewer said about an impossible abduction, missing people, aliens, witches, shaman, and ravens all rolled into one weirdly comical, fast-moving novel. Links to both novels are on the podcast site. Welcome to Mysteries to Die For. I am T.G. Wolf, and I'm here with Jack, my piano player and producer. This is a podcast where we combine storytelling with original music to put you at the heart of a mystery. Some episodes are original stories, and others will be classics that help shape the mystery genre we know today. All are structured to challenge you to beat the detective to the solution. These are arrangements, which means we never quite know what musical instrument Jack's going to pick on his keyboard. And you get the performances that are meant to be heard. We perform these live, front to back, no breaks, no fakes, no retakes, no matter how much I beg. Season 6 is again ad-free. I do this because I love mysteries, and Jack does this because he loves me. Jack may be a starving college student, but that's because he's still a fan of American cheese. We do ask that you support the writers of our show. This week, it's Ed Teja. Check him out on his website and social, buy and read his stories, and help other readers find him. Make writing for Mysteries to Die For the best decision he could have made. And in your review, tell him Tina and Jack said hi. So this is season six, Things That Go Jack in the Night. This season contains truly imaginative mysteries around one of the most common words in the English language. From the brandy distilled from hard cider known as Applejack, to that nefarious one-eyed Jack, to the animals, vegetables, fruits, tools, weapons, and slang, the way the word Jack is used in the English language is truly unique, inventive, and, well, too numerous for me to count. And yes, it's also the name of my piano player and producer. For episode four, Jack B. Nimble is the featured Jack. This is The Death That Jack Died by Ed Teha. The House That Jack Built I drove the patrol car along the narrow winding road that leads up the western slope of Treasure Mountain. It's a beautiful area north of Silver City, New Mexico. Johnny, Travis, and I were headed for a large, lovely adobe home that stood alone, a solitary dwelling on 15 acres overlooking the lower lands. Without being told, Johnny circled around to cover me as I knocked on the door. Sheriff's Department, I called out. When a thin, blonde, pale woman opened the door, I showed her my badge. Deputy Amanda Thomas, I said, and then I nodded to Johnny. This is Deputy Travis. Her vacant stare told me it wasn't registering. We're answering a 911 call. Yes, she said, blinking at me. She nodded and opened the door wide. Is this your house, I asked, as we entered an entryway large enough to hold the mobile home I live in. She shook her head. 
I live here, but this is, was, the house, Jack's house, the home that Jack bought. Jack? Johnny asked. He already had his notebook out. All Jack of all trades, she said, suggesting I should know what the hell she was talking about. The name meant nothing to me. A brief glance at Johnny told me he didn't have a clue either. I'm Zelda Evans, the blonde said, holding up his cell phone and wiggling it so I'd be sure to see. I made the call. It, he, the, the body is this way. I knew we'd get to the name soon enough. Johnny and I followed her through into a great room, which is what they call the pointlessly gargantuan living rooms the rich folks out here go for. The floor was saltillo tile, and the ceiling was about 40 feet high. Inside the room, she pointed to a large fireplace built into the wall. There was no fire burning, but a crumpled form hung awkwardly over the head of a large ceramic cow standing next to the fireplace. It looked as if the body had been carefully draped there, except that the man was impaled on one twisted horn. A pool of blood covered the floor. Johnny darted over and checked for a pulse, but shook his head. Body is cold, he said. That's why I called, she said. This is Jack, I asked. She nodded. That's how everyone knows him. She stared into the distance. I had to pull her attention back. And his legal name? Howard Klein, she said. How ironic is this? I didn't follow. Ironic, I asked. Oh, she was on the edge. This is his corpse, all shaven and shored, impaled on the cow with a crumpled horn. Then she stared at me, eyes wise. He loved that fucking cow. He had a local woman make it special because the ones he found here didn't have a crumpled horn. I looked around the room. It had no furniture in it, but it was hardly empty. A tall column stood in the center. A flame flickered at the very top. The column was surrounded by scaffolding, some of it collapsed, that had pulleys and wires, and a frame that had been covered in red, white, and blue bunting, some of which had been ripped off by the falling man, I guessed. The ramp with what looked like a springboard sat next to it. Along the sidewall, long tables were covered with finger food and a punch bowl. Johnny gestured toward the body with his notebook. And he fell like this? She nodded. We checked him and he was dead, so we didn't want to move him. We, I asked. There were witnesses? Oh, yes, yeah, she said. We were all right here, watching. The others are in their rooms, waiting for you. I looked at Johnny. Contact the medical examiner and make sure she's on her way. Then mark off the room. Secure the crime scene and start taking photos. Johnny beamed. He loved taking crime scene photos. As he got out his phone, I took Zelda aside into the sitting area. All this stuff, I nodded at the tables. Were you planning a party? Sort of. We were in the middle of the great reveal of Jack's latest trick. She sighed. Even showing us his tricks had to be good theater. I looked up, taking in the frame and scaffolding. What kind of trick was it? Her smile was strange. Jack be nimble, Jack be quick was supposed to jump over the candlestick. Her voice was sing-songy. Well, he did jump over it. That part worked. Jumped over what, I asked. She pointed to the center of the room. That tower is his prototype of a candlestick. She shook her head. The others would have to come up with a way to make it look real, if huge. I looked up and up 
and he jumped over it? Nearly, she said, pointing to the flame. The vault went well, and he did a nice somersault through the flame. Then her finger pointed at the square device on the floor that looked like an industrial-strength air mattress. Something went wrong. He was supposed to land on that crash pad, not his beloved cow. He missed, I asked. Something seemed to catch him and twist him in the air. It fucked the trajectory. She rubbed her face. Poor Jack would appreciate that even his failure was dramatic. He liked a big close. I was trying to imagine it. So a group of people watched Jack fly through the air and land here. She nodded. On the cow with the crumpled horn. I was getting tired of the nursery rhyme already. What happened next, I asked. Carl, he's Jack's brother, ran over to him. He said he was dead and he told me to call 911. He thought we should all go to our rooms and wait for the police and, and here you are. Who else is here, I asked, ready to take down names. The people who turn a trick into production, she said. Everyone who needed to see the new stunt and help finish it. Jack gets an idea for a trick and develops it, just the mechanics of the centerpiece stunt. The others make it a show. I'm afraid it isn't clear, I said. She nodded. Well, there's Millie. She's a scriptwriter. She has to come up with a story. Carl and his wife Sandra, they work with Billy. They design this dead and create the other stunts. These people are all here, I asked. And when she nodded, I said, are there any servants? No, she said. Jack sent them home the day before yesterday with pay. He didn't want anyone seeing the stunt during the reveal. Her eyes drifted into the room where Johnny was shooting photos of everything. I brought her focus back to me. Have you lived here long? She sighed. Jack moved us here from New York a little over a year ago. Seems like forever. I heard what she didn't say. You miss the city? She nodded. Well, this is an impressive house, I said. Zelda Evans flashed a grin as if she were starting to wake up, getting a grip on things. She raised an eyebrow. It has to be. It's the house that Jack bought. Again, the suggestion that I should know something I didn't. And he did stunts for a living? Her eyebrows rose. You don't know? I shook my head. Jack would be crushed. Deputy, you are in the home of the famous All Jacks of All Trades. Jack put on lavish productions for the parties of the rich and spoiled children all over the world. Private shows at the home of billionaires, Saudi princes. This was supposed to be for an Italian industrialist in a few months. A world away from Silver City, New Mexico, I thought. What kind of productions? Well, a complete show centered around a theme trick based on a fairy tale and nursery rhymes. Big, lavish productions. She waved her hand back toward the tower. This one, when fleshed out, would fill the courtyard of a villa. Jack became famous with a two-story stage he created for his version, and his and Millie's, of Jack and the Beanstalk. The upper floor was the giant's realm, and the beanstalk, well, it was amazing. Whatever the rich and famous will pay for. I looked it over again. So he made a lot of money? She waved her hands. More than he needed, and he bought this. You don't care for it, I asked her. <laughs> she snorted. It's in the middle of nowhere, and it fits in perfectly with its surroundings. Big space, big production. It made me wonder. You have a large crew? Her smile was thin and tight-lipped. Four people, plus Jack and me. All I do is admire his work. Then she laughed. Not that his work wasn't brilliant. 
he was a global phenomenon. At the peak of his success, he moved to rural New Mexico, I asked. As much as I loved the state, it wasn't a place the famous would pick for staying connected with the rich and famous. She laughed, and it had a hollow sound. <laughs> Doesn't make a lick of sense, does it? It made me the maiden all forlorn. She smiled wistfully. Jack's words. Of course they were. The Interviews Jack's brother, Carl Klein, was an athletic, athletic and muscular man with a compact build. He had a cheerful face, not that he seemed pleased about his brother dying, but he seemed the irrepressible sort. I understand you work closely with Howard, or Jack, I asked him. All my life, he said. My brother had a dream for us both. We started doing stunts together in school and then for movies. When he got the Jack and the Beanstalk idea, he asked me to help out. It was a huge success, and now I play Rose in all the productions, sometimes even taking his role for special effects. Special effects, I prompted? Well, he came up with the Jack in the Box trick, he said, and that meant that Jack had to be in two places at once. He grinned. I was the other Jack. I get it, I said. And you design stunts? Well, after Jack gets the big idea, Carl said, the rest of us work out two or three side stunts for a show. Things that excite the kids, but nothing that will overshadow the centerpiece. That has to be the peak, the most intense thing. And Jack performs the stunts, I asked. He shrugged. Depends on the story. Sandra, my wife, does some stunts, and I do some. Jack, he does the high-profile ones. I nodded, following. Because it's more dangerous? Carl laughed. It looks dangerous, but we emphasize that idea. But in truth, the little stunts are trickier and often more dangerous. They just don't look as spectacular. His face said it was all in a day's work. Do you know how this trick was supposed to work, I asked? The one that killed Jack. He shook his head. Jack tends to be secretive. He likes springing the tricks on us as much as he does the reaction he gets the first time an audience sees it. But I can make a good guess. I've worked on his tricks my whole life, so even though I was in California until yesterday, seeing what I've seen, well, most anyone in the business could work it out. But you saw the accident, I asked. Did you notice anything odd? Carl nodded. I mean, he lost it before going into the dismount. He smiled at my expression. That's a gymnastic term that we co-opt to mean making a safe landing. I looked at him. So do you think someone sabotaged the apparatus? The idea didn't seem to surprise him. I wondered. I mean, Jack had an ego. He hated falling on his face in front of an audience. What you see might look patched together, but he looks, but he was a really careful designer. He shook his head. Having a stunt fail isn't like him, but it is possible. I hate to think someone in this group wanted to hurt him. Well, who would benefit from his death, I asked. Did someone want him dead? Carl rubbed his face. I'm not sure. He looked at me. Sandra will point the finger at Zelda because Jack will likely provide for her in his will. His smile was wistful. She thought he was using me. But in terms of his death, most of us lose out. 
Jack was the spark plug of the operation, and we all loved him. Despite his ego, apparently. So Sandra, who is Carl's wife and another actor, disagreed with her husband's assessment. Yes, Jack was careful, but everything had to be about Jack, she said. Carl does some of the most dangerous tricks and doesn't even get billing. All we get is our salaries. What about you, I asked. Did he keep you in the shadows? She waved off the implication. I'm paid the standard stunt rate for my work, and that's fine, but Carl is his brother. He deserved a share in the profits. And now what happens with the show, I asked. She shook her head. I suppose we have to figure out what went wrong with the stunt, fix it, and then put on the show in Italy. The idea didn't seem to bother her in the least. Assume for a moment that Jack's death wasn't an accident, I said, and someone rigged the apparatus. Who might do that? She wrinkled her nose, considering the idea that it was deliberate. Look, Carl and I canceled work we were offering California to be available for this gig. We need it to go on. And it will, right? I pushed. The show must go on, she laughed, one way or another. But if someone messed with that trick, they couldn't be sure that it would kill him. I mean, who would figure he'd land on that fucking cow horn? There is that, I agreed. But if you assume the person thought it would kill Jack, who would gain by his death? Zelda, she said firmly. She and Jack had been kind of distant lately. Then she stared up at the ceiling. Billy Preston, she asked. He wears a wrong man look half the time. Wronged, I asked. Millie, his wife, creates the story, Sandra said. She comes up with a lot of the glitz that makes the show a wow. Why would that bother Billy Preston, I asked her. Well, he feels Jack took credit for Millie's idea, she said. Like the way the famous Jack and the Beanstalk set worked. Like the rest of us, Millie's an employee, writing a work for hire. So her blockbuster ideas profit for Jack, and she gets no credit. And she and Jack have history. She only met Billy when he joined us two years ago, and she spends a lot of time locked in an office with Jack working on the uh, stories. Well, I had to ask the question. And you think something was going on between them? Sandra shrugged. I have no idea, but Billy may have thought there was. Which made me wonder. Did Zelda think that? She frowned. She and I don't talk that much. When I talked to Millie Preston, the writer, the deep sobs rippling through her suggested Jack's death affected her badly. Maybe Billy had reason to worry. Were you too close, I asked her. Millie nodded, trying to get her tears under control. I, I worked with him back when he was putting together kids' magic shows, before he became Jack. Do you know what he intended to do with this trick, I asked? What is the point of it? A faint smile appeared. Jack asked me to read the Jack Be Nimble, Jack Be Quick rhyme. He was thinking of a story where something is chasing Jack and he grabs a skateboard and barrels down a circular ramp. He does a couple of stunts, gymnastic things, and then picks up speed. The ramp lofts him into the air. He dumps the skateboard and vaults the candlestick doing a somersault. After seeing the apparatus, I could picture the stunt. And you had to make that into a story. She blew her nose and nodded. I mean, a simple one figure out how he antagonized a wolf or something, and then come up with a suitable wrap-up. It sounded wild. Was that the usual process? 
<laughs> she almost laughed, but a sob cut it off. Normal isn't a word I associate with Jack. That was what made working with him so exciting. Every time he got an idea, or I got one, or he bought one from a local act, we approached our production differently. The only real constant was that we tried to get the name Jack in it somehow. And that was your job, I asked. We both did it, she said, and the more Jacks, the better. A laugh did escape this time. He was so happy when I came up with the modification of the standard conjure trick, where he stomped on a jackfruit with jack boots and then put the mess on a platform that he raised to the ceiling with the hydraulic jack, and poof, it was whole again. I must have missed that one, I said. She nodded, tears flowing once again. It wasn't as widely appreciated as we'd hoped. Billy Preston, Millie's husband, designed and built the final sets. I turned their half-baked ideas into a set that communicated a coherent story. He waved a hand. Once they firmed up the story, I have to turn this junk into an elaborate set that we can plop down in a villa courtyard. What villa courtyard, I asked, never knowing what could be relevant. Some Italian loony, Billy said. He was willing to pay a fortune for Jack to perform a nursery rhyme stunt for a spoiled brat at his Italian villa. Yeah, Billy sounded like the disgruntled man Sandra made him out to be. You like the work, I asked? Yeah, I do, he said, words and tones mismatched. I sensed that while that might be true, it wasn't the whole story. Did Jack have any enemies? Billy smiled. An arrogant bastard like that always does, but I can't think of anyone in particular. What about you, I asked. I understand he spent a lot of hours with your wife on scripts. Did that bother you? They'd been working that way long before I came along, he said. It was part of the package. I studied his face and then asked, Do you think there was more to their relationship than work? At my question, Billy's eyes flared. Are you trying to make me think there was? I shook my head. I'm asking questions that your answers and your attitude make me think of, Mr. Preston. I'm not suggesting what you should think. The scowl that came over him cracked his face in a way that reminded me of dried arroyo. What I think is he didn't give Millie enough credit for her contributions. That's it. I didn't think she was having an affair with him. Fair enough, I told him. Now Jack's business manager was a nervous little man named Stan Burroughs who, if he knew as little as he claimed, couldn't have been much of a business manager. Are there any more shows lined up, I asked. He didn't know. Jack handled the bookings, he said. Did Jack have any enemies? He didn't know. Did he ever receive any threats? He didn't know. He also didn't know if Jack was in debt or rolling in cash, if the business had any substantial debts or almost anything of substance. I don't do the books, Dan said. Jack used an outside accounting firm. I bit my tongue to keep from asking why Jack needed a business manager since Jack did it all. He wouldn't know that either. He did know the name of the accounting firm, however. Stan only handles what Jack called the back end, Zelda said when I talked to her again. Jack found the gigs, usually at high-end cocktail parties. I don't get it, I said, so what did Stan do? The usual thing, she said, as if there was such a thing. He made sure the contracts were honored, and when advance money was to be paid, Stan set up the logistics, chartering planes, and so on. When it was over, he made the client, made sure the client's people paid the balance. But a business manager, I asked? A nice title, she said. He actually has an MBA, but, well, 
Jack likes to make a splash, but had no interest in tidying up after. So he had Stan basically doing that as well as paying subcontractors and other bills. So more assistant than manager, I said. How did Jack do the negotiating and promoting from rural New Mexico? With difficulty, she admitted. Being right in the social circle in New York was how he met people. I told him this wasn't going to be sustainable. And he ignored you, I asked. She sighed. Up until this move, up until a year ago, Jack bounced everything off of me. Business ideas, thoughts for improving the show. He asked me what I thought of each person on the crew. He called me his eyes and his ears. My interest perked up. Was Jack afraid of getting ripped off? She scowled. It's more that he was cautious. A stuntman doesn't survive by leaving anything to chance. She nodded to the great room. Case in point. Do you think the trick went wrong? I asked. <laughs> she laughed. I certainly don't think he intended to impale himself on a cow with a crumpled horn in the house that Jack bought. But did something fail? I asked. Or was it made to fail? She turned her face to look at me and I saw an odd smile. You think it could be murder? I intend to find out, I said. I took out my phone and sent a text. The answer came right back. I looked at her. Can everyone stay here during the investigation? Zelda nodded. They all expected to hang around the west rest of the week, so sure. And that worked for me. I want to bring someone out who knows about rigging. Well, that's everyone here, she said. Everyone but Millie and Stan. I understand, she said. I understand, I said. But I need someone not connected with the show to tell me if this apparatus was tampered with. A soft glow of understanding lit up her eyes. Ah, she said, and you'd rather not take the advice from a murderer. That wouldn't be useful, I said. Now, while I was doing the interviews, Johnny worked with the medical examiner. By the time I finished, she had done her job and left with the body. Before Johnny and I left, I warned everyone to stay out of the great room. I don't want any of you leaving the grounds, I said, not even for groceries. If you need something, call Johnny and we'll bring it tomorrow. Billy moaned. More interviews. I'll be back with my expert, I said. Then there'll probably be more interviews. Your expert, Johnny asked when he got into the car. A friend of mine, Ryan the Rigger. He's a retiree, a former oil rigger who moonlighted, for the love of it, he claims, working on carnival rides. Sounds just like the person we need to look at this mess, Johnny said. We need to contact Howard Klein's lawyer and find out the terms of his will, I said. Who will benefit from his death, Johnny asked. I grinned at him. Hey, kid, there is hope for you. I wrote a rhyme to summarize the clues, Johnny said. You gotta be kidding me, I told him. But he wasn't. He held up his notebook and read it to me. This is the death that Jack died. This is the house that Jack bought. This is the cow with the crumpled horn that stands by the fireplace to adorn the house that Jack bought. This is the corpse all tattered and torn, impaled on the cow with the crumpled horn that stood by the fireplace that did adorn the house that Jack bought. I put in calls to Jack's accounting firm and his lawyer. I had gotten his name from Zelda. It turned out that he was in Silver City and would be happy to chat. I barely knew him, Bert Simmons told me when I dropped by. I wrote a new will for him when he bought that house, and we were winding down some business things. Winding them down, I asked. The lawyer sat back, toyed with his bolo tie. 
Under the circumstances, he wanted to start transferring some things right away, and that made sense. My hackles went up. What circumstances? Why, his prognosis, of course, he said. My expression must have told him I didn't know what he meant. Jack was dying, he said. He had some kind of tumor. It was inoperable, so he was turning the show over to his heirs. Bert dug out a yellow notepad. I wrote this down after you called. The business is to be shared equally between his brother, Carl Klein, and Millie Preston. I made a note. What about his girlfriend? Zelda Evans gets a permanent small cut of any profits, he said, and she inherits his investments and the house. She hates the house, I said. He glanced up. I mean his house in New York. He flipped pages. The one here goes to Millie Preston. Interesting, I thought. He was starting to transfer that now? Bert nodded. I drew up the papers. Apparently, once he demonstrated this new trick, he would announce his retirement. I was supposed to take the new documents that transfer an ownership at all to the house when he called. So he didn't intend to do the show in Italy, I asked. He wasn't sure he'd be strong enough. He was excited about it, though. He thought his brother, brother would love the trick, and he wanted to demonstrate it. The man looked at me. How sad that it all went that way. Very sad, I said. Do you know who knew about the diagnosis? Bert shook his head. I got the impression that Jack was keeping it a secret. I wrote who knew on my notepad and then asked, anything else? Bert made a sour face. It might be relevant. When I brought the paperwork up, I was supposed to also give Stan Burroughs a severance notice. I didn't hear about that, I said. Mr. Klein, I mean Jack, told me that he suspected Stan was stealing from the company. On my advice, he hired an auditor to go over the books. He also had an investigator look into Stan's personal finances. Now, I don't know the details, just that I was to tell Stan that he was through and tell him that if he didn't accept the severance package, he'd be prosecuted. It was quite a generous offer, all things considered. I thought so too. Biting the hand that feeds you is always a bad idea. Killing the man that feeds you is terrible, Bert said. I rose. Some people don't understand generosity. The Trick That Jack Built When Johnny and I drove up to the house the next day, Rudy the Rigger was with us. Johnny gave him the photos he'd taken of the crime scene, just in case anything had been altered while we were gone. When he saw the rig while Rudy's face lit up. Wow, he said. While he methodically began examining the apparatus, Johnny and I talked to our witnesses again. This time, I wanted to know if anyone knew about Jack's illness. The news turned Zelda pale. Then anger came into his, her eyes. Damn that man! Jack took several trips to Zurich a couple years ago. He said he was meeting with a prospective client, but he started having headaches. Betty went to a clinic there. He never said anything, I asked. Not a word, she practically hissed. But that's when he got the idea to leave New York. I could see that, I said, but why here? For quiet, maybe? She shook her, shook her head sadly. Or maybe because he didn't want people who knew him well around all the time. They might notice. She laughed. The stoic stuntman wouldn't want anyone fussing over him. Over his actor's performance, sure, but certainly not for having a terminal illness. 
Did you know that Stan Burroughs was about to be fired? I asked. She smiled. Was he? I'd been after Jack to dump him for some time. Jack had proof he was stealing, I said, watching her reaction. He has a gambling habit, she said resignedly. I warned Jack. I nodded. According to his lawyer, Jack hired someone to verify it. Well, she said, mollified. It's nice to know he listened to some things, I said. I wish he'd listened to me and not sold the house in New York. I decided that telling her he hadn't sold it would be left to the lawyer. Do you think Stan suspected he was about to get the axe? No idea, she blinked. That would be quite a motive to kill Jack, wouldn't it? I thought it might qualify. Carl and Sandra claimed not to know Jack was sick either. I knew my brother was having headaches, Carl said. He said it was stress. I wish he told us something, Sandra said, especially if he planned to turn over the business to Carl. Why is that, I asked. Carl chuckled. A competitor of his, Vaughn Enterprises, has been after me to go to work for them. Were you interested, I asked. Hell no, he looked to his wife. But Sandra has been hounding me to take the offer. To hear him out, at least, she said. But you didn't, I asked. No, he said. I told them that I couldn't consider it. And besides, Jack made some noise about making changes. And he wouldn't tell me until after we saw the new trick. But he promised me I'd like the news. He was always big on promises, Sandra said, rolling her eyes. Carl waved a hand. Anyway, I told Vaughn that I needed to hear what Jack had in mind. Would you consider the offer? I pressed. He sighed. I mean, I didn't want to, but if Jack wasn't reasonable, well, I promised Sandra I'd listen then. She's right that if Jack won't make me a part owner, I need to think about my future. I'd have to take an offer that would let me build equity or go back to working in the stunt union. And I'd go with him, Sandra said, nodding emphatically. It's high time Carl thought of himself, of us. A stuntman has a limited career and needs to prepare for the time when he can't do them anymore. Tell us about Stan, Johnny suggested. What sort of relationship did he have with Jack? They looked at each other. I never quite understood what he did, Carl said. I was sure he never did much of anything, Sandra said. Billy Preston didn't show much of the reaction to the news, but it hit Millie hard. Oh, that poor man, she said. I thought there was more to the headaches than he let on. When she said that, the look on Billy's face told me that, despite the way he brushed off the idea, Billy wasn't thrilled by Millie's attachment to Jack. And when it came to Stan, they were in the dark. We didn't have much to do with him, Billy said. He issued the paychecks, but that was the only thing we dealt with him about. And yet, he was at this reveal, I pointed out. First time, Billy said. He said Jack insisted he'd be here for this one, and he didn't seem thrilled. Stan, looking sullen, admitted that he knew about Jack's illness. I wrote the checks to the clinics, he said. I made him tell me what those were about. Did you have anything to do with why you were here, I asked. Everyone thought that was unusual. Well, Jack said he was making changes and that this would be a good time to rethink the business structure, he said. Any idea what Jack was thinking of, I asked, fishing to see if he knew his head was on the chopping block. Well, no one knew, Stan said, but Jack had a couple of offers to buy out the act. Solid offers, I asked? Very. Stan lifted his chin, almost looking like a business manager, 
It's hard to put a value on a performance, but if Jack needed a step down, he could have done it in comfort. Johnny tapped his pen on his front teeth, an annoying habit. Is that what he decided to do? Sell out? He died before we talked, Stan said. So why would someone want to kill Jack? Johnny asked. Stan shrugged. If they heard he was thinking of selling the company, they might think it left them out with nothing. Cut out. Cut out, I asked. Anyone in particular? Well, I mean, if Jack sold, we'd all either have to work for the new owner or be unemployed, he reasoned. So, all of us. Fair enough, I said. And who benefits from Jack's death? Well, Carl's been waiting in the wings a long time, Stan said. He's loyal, but he thinks he'd be a better Jack. And so does Sandra. And maybe Billy thought if something happened to Jack, Millie could negotiate a better deal for herself. What about you, Johnny asked. I mean, under new owners, my job would change, and probably for the better. Stan rubbed his face. With Jack gone, everything would be up in the air. I bet, Johnny said. Who wanted to buy the company? Well, one of his competitors had the best offer, Vaughn Enterprises. The other was from a Vegas magician. He had ideas about scaling the productions down for the stage there. If they made offers to Jack, how do you know about them? I asked. Stan gave me a cornered rat look. Well, because he turned them down. Vaughn called me and said that if I could convince him to sell, he'd give me a commission. I was going to talk to Jack about the offer. Of course, I said. You didn't mention Jack was dying. He scowled. Well, that would screw the deal. And the other offer, I said, the magic deck? Stan chewed his lips. Sandra's brother runs the Vegas act. She told him to call me for the same reason Vaughn wanted my help. I considered that. I want to talk to this Vaughn, I said. Fine, Stan said, shrugging. Knock yourself out. So it comes down to a situation where, if Jack didn't sell, you'd miss out, I said. Stan looked positively glum. His death took that right off the table. Maybe so, but business is convoluted. Our final interview was with Rudy the Rigger. Find anything, Johnny asked him. He nodded. The apparatus was nicely designed and well made. It failed because one of the grabbing pulleys wasn't rigged properly. Explain, I asked, having no idea what a grabbing pulley is. It's something like a brake, he explained. When your victim completed the somersault, he grabbed a pair of rings connected to ropes secured at the top of the candlestick. I shook my head. So he's flying through the air and he has to grab rings? Rudy laughed at me. It's not a big deal. You see that in any circus. He grabs the rings and slides down the ropes. There's a pulley on each rope that puts tension on the rope to slow his descent. I think he intended to release the rings at the end and do a backfall onto the crash pad. I get it, I said, but one was messed up. Rudy scratched his head. It's just unhooked. The loop was slipped off. That would have one rope slowing him down and the other loose, and a free fall. The torque probably wrenched the ring out of his hand and he fell. I pictured it. Could that bit with the pulley have been negligence? I doubt it, he said. Is that a kind of thing that it would take technical knowledge to figure out, he asked. And would a person need a lot of time with the trick to figure out how to undo the pulley? Rudy shook his head. I mean, it's simple enough that anyone who's been around the show at a time and seen previous tricks could figure it out. And slipping the rope off only takes a couple of seconds. Then I had a new idea. 
Would whoever did it have been able to tell how and where he'd land? Rudy shook his head. You mean just injure him? No, there's, there's too many variables. He's a pro stuntman and he'd know how to fall, but they couldn't reasonably be sure that he'd miss the target and get smashed up pretty good. He scowled, and that cow was just in the wrong place for him. In the house that Jack bought, Johnny said. I don't think he realized he was talking out loud. Those damn nursery rhymes stick in your head like jingles. How's the investigation going? Zelda asked, coming into the room. Slowly, I said. Please keep everyone here and we'll meet again tomorrow morning. Then we headed to the car. Do you know who did it yet? Johnny asked me, looking up from an edit on his poem. I did have a hunch. I think so, but I need to make some calls, I said. I'm betting on the butler, Johnny said. I turned onto the narrow road that led down the mut mountain. The butler who had the day off and wasn't there? Now, superficially, that would appear to give the guy an alibi, Johnny said. But it doesn't hold up. The man's name is also Jack. There's nothing like conclusive proof, I said. All right, we're at the deliberation with the death that Jack died. It was the butler. <laughs> You're with Johnny? I'm with Johnny. <laughs> nah, I have. I think I know. I, I have a guess. Do you want the suspects and yes. stuff? Okay. Um, I want to remind readers before we get into our suspects to check out our print and ebooks, the companion books for season four, A Word Before Dying, and season five, Move It and Lose It, Move It or Lose It, are available in ebook and trade paperback from online retailers. This season's book it will be released on September 12th. Look for the pre-order links. The dimes and quarters from book sales do support the podcast and keep Jack and Mike's and aux cords. Now, as far as Deputy Amanda Thomas and Johnny Travis go, um, they have a case more twisted than the, the cow's horn. And here are the rats that were scurrying around the house that Jack bought. All right. Zelda Evans, Jack's significant other, who rather have stayed in New York. Carl Klein, Jack's brother, who's been doing stunts with Jack his entire life. Sandra Klein, Carl's wife, who also did stunts and thought Carl deserved a share of the business. Millie Preston, the writer, who worked closely with Jack on the storylines. Billy Preston, Millie's husband, who designed the stunts and might have minded how close his wife worked with the boss. And Stan Burroughs, the business manager who was entrusted to run the business. So, here, okay. here's the clues. Okay, okay. You want to comment there? No. Okay. I'll wait. All right. Jack died after a bad landing while debuting a stunt. The rigging on one of the grips was tampered with, which caused it to be thrown to one side. It would have taken seconds to unhook the, the pulley, and Jack landed on the cow with the crumpled horn. I always wonder about that. Shouldn't it be the bull? Because cows had not have horns. That's what I was wondering. I was like, all right. I mean, I guess if it's part of the nursery rhyme. It is part of the nursery rhyme. And most likely it's not a real, like the cow didn't actually have a grow the horn. It was added. I don't know. Because I forget how he explained. It was a ceramic cow. That. They a had what? it. It was a ceramic cow. He, he had it made. Oh, then yeah. It's just clearly for the nursery rhyme. Yeah. Jack and Zelda were alone in the house until the guests had arrived. Jack let their staff have time off with pay to make sure no one else was around. Jack built the apparatus himself. Only Stan and Millie had no experience with rigging. Uh, Jack had a terminal diagnosis, which only Stan Burroughs knew about. Jack was restructuring his personal and professional life, but no one but his lawyer knew the details. As far as anyone knew, the business died when Jack died. 
uh, Sandra and Carl were employed staff, and that was fine for Sandra, but as you've heard multiple times, she thought Carl should have had part of the business and a share of the profits. She was encouraging her husband to look at other offers. Speaking of other offers, Sandra's brother, who runs a Vegas magic act, was interested in buying Jack's old tricks. When Jack wouldn't listen, he took the offer to Stan Burroughs. Carl was dedicated to his brother, and he hoped that the news that Jack promised would be the change that he, quote, and Sandra, needed. Billy says he likes his job, but it doesn't sound like he does. And he says he doesn't mind his wife Millie working closely with the boss, but it doesn't sound like he does that either. Now, Stan was incentivized by Vaughn Enterprises and Sandra's brother to get Jack to seriously consider the buyout offers. Stan was also suspected by his boss, and I think it was proven, of embezzling and was about to be fired. But he claims he never got the chance to talk to Jack about either items. So Johnny wrote a poem about it. You want to hear Johnny's poem? Yes. Again. This is the maiden all forlorn that lived in the house that Jack bought. The... that hated the cow with the crumpled horn that impaled the corpse that found the body that called the cops that investigated the corpse that got impaled on the crumpled horn that died in the house that Jack bought. These are the suspects that were there that day that offered the clues about the way that Jack got impaled on the crumpled horn that made the maiden all forlorn that hated the cow that called the cops about the corpse that got impaled on the crumpled horn and died in the house that Jack bought. That's a pretty good one. <laughs> so I had to go slow. <laughs> Ed made me a tongue twister of a story. All right. So can you psychically tune in to, uh, to author Ed Tejas' story here? Jacques Sandra. I think San- it's Sandra. Your okay. money's on Sandra? Uh, my money's on Sandra. Okay. I think uh, I always am hesitant um, on, like, I feel very confident. And then we go into the deliberation. And then you're like, all right, here's all this evidence, all of it all 30 paragraphs of evidence against this character. And I'm like, ah, that's too much evidence. It can't be them. <laughs> so when you kept saying, talking about Sandra, I was like, ah, it's too much. It's too much. It's too obvious. I refuse not to game this stupid podcast. I do it every time. And it, it only, it works. It works sometimes, but I think it's Sandra. Um, some, some things threw me off in the deliberation um, because she did not, if Sandra had known in any capacity that Carl would take over the business, I don't think she would be pushing for Carl to go with a different group. I agree. So nobody then knew. why would she bother injuring him? Yeah, nobody knew but the lawyer that Jack was about to turn the company over to Millie and Carl. Yes. So the things that people know that they have to gain from it would simply be that the company would have to move on to someone new. Mm -hmm. And if Sandra, maybe Sandra was like, okay, my husband isn't willing to move on. Let's kill this guy so that he's willing to move on. Or maybe now her plan has changed into, I mean, she doesn't know yet that he's going to take over the business, but now he has incentive to leave. He doesn't have Jack there. And with Jack dead, I mean, if he didn't inherit the business... He might have been able to sort of buy it yeah, or or somehow take it over, even if he didn't formally buy it. I don't know how that works with a privately owned company. Yeah, it's clear that Carl didn't do it. I feel like he would not have bothered staying. He seems very loyal to his brother, and I don't think it's him. Millie, again, I just don't think she has it in her to kill him with this like reaction she's having. Even if it is dramatized and fake, there's Mm -hmm. just not enough evidence as to why she would do it. Did I read it that badly that you thought it was fake? 
No, 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 no. I'm saying if theoretically she's oh. faking it all okay. and it's all just for her to get, you know, away with it. Yeah. What would she be getting away with? Like, what would she get out of it? Nothing. 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 Um, the husband or Billy, Billy, is he her husband or her yeah. boyfriend? Uh, husband. Husband. I mean, it's not enough in my mind to have for this all all this evidence that exists, all this stuff that's going to happen if Jack mm. dies. And it's just to get him to stop maybe fooling around with his wife. And he's in clear denial about it. At least to other people. Maybe he accepted it with himself. But he won't tell other people. There's certainly tons of mysteries out there where jealousy drives murder. Yeah. But I agree with your thinking. It doesn't seem the forefront. That Millie and Jack were working together before ever Billy came into the picture. Yeah. And she fell for him, obviously. And then they got married. So, yeah, it... And if Jack did die, that would hurt his... I mean, it would hurt so much. Yeah. Uh, Zelda, I get that she's pissed off that she moved. That doesn't matter. Like, that's it. That's the only thing she's kind of mad about, at him not listening to her. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't... That's not enough to kill him. Again, there's just too much at stake. She could go and live her life in New York if she, I guess, wanted to. Maybe she feels isolated, but yeah. she's still going to go and, like, tour and do everything with him doesn't seem like a good enough reason it's also weird that he didn't tell his was it his girlfriend or his wife girlfriend girlfriend like that's a weird thing not to tell her especially I before this like he's gonna get in trouble for that <laughs> i think that if if zelda wanted to kill him i think you're right that leaving leaving him and going back would have been a, a more logical reaction if she was that unhappy living in new mexico yeah and to hurt him in such a a, a big way even saying that the person who did it didn't mean to kill him mm-hmm. it almost it almost makes less sense if they didn't mean to kill him because what it was just to embarrass him like yeah. you know it wouldn't have stopped anything yeah um so and she didn't seem like she was that bitter against jack oh that brought me to the other point that i remembered and then forgot i keep forgetting that they didn't mean to kill him if sandra injured jack and not killed him carl would take over and carl would be the next oh, big stuff yeah. and so he would be in the spotlight that yeah. she wanted him in that carl didn't seem yeah. carl was annoyed that he didn't get much recognition but not as much as sandra was and right. sandra's making like obvious moves to get him there um the other guy was it sal saul the guy who was the manager who's about to get booted stan stan wow i was off stan again just not enough yeah he was about to get booted but that's just like a minor thing he didn't know about it even if he did it doesn't seem like he was all that upset he had, you know, very little incentive still to injure him. Well, and he didn't understand the rigging from everything that the story tells us, so... Yeah, I'll, I'll pretend like they couldn't have figured that out. <laughs> they could have. Okay. Like, they're around those kind of people. They could have figured it out. But also, what exposure has everybody had to this? Like, when, when would they have been able to go and do that? It would have had to been... I guess to that point, it, it might not have been really premeditated... Because they're walking into his house, not knowing knowing that it's for, you know, a big reveal, but yeah. not knowing what it is. I wonder if, if he, uh, the author, will explain how she did it, oh. or well, it might not have been her, but how the accused did it. No. Anyway, I think it's Sandra. Everyone yeah. else seems slightly pissed off in their situation, but not enough to injure or kill someone. And even then, the crime of just injuring someone to move on and take over doesn't seem like that big of a deal Mm -hmm. until it turned to murder on accident so yeah i'm going with sandra all right
Let us know who you all think did it as we go into the reveal. It was a gorgeous New Mexican afternoon when I gathered everyone together on the flagstone patio where we had a fantastic view of the land below. Everyone was there sitting in plastic chairs, most of them with drinks. It looked like a party. To start with, I said, we are sure that Jack's death was not accidental, nor was it due to negligence. Murder then, Zelda asked. The idea clearly hurt her. Who wanted to kill Jack? We'll get to that, I said. I can't say that his death was premeditated, but the stunt was rigged to fail. Whoever did that had to know that the inevitable result was that Jack would be seriously hurt or killed. I looked at Stan. One possibility is that the person wanted to prevent Jack from implementing his new business plan. New plan, Carl asked. You mean the changes he mentioned? Johnny nodded, and the reason for them. His illness, Carl said, slumping visibly. Johnny held up his notebook, and that reason was one that only Stan knew. I pointed at Stan. You knew that there was a reorganization and that Jack was dying. I'm guessing you suspected that Jack brought you in here to fire you. Stan groaned. No, he wouldn't do that to me. He would if he had proof that you've been stealing from the company, I said. And he did. That gives you a motive to kill. He could have had you prosecuted for stealing. But I don't know shit about how that stunt works, Stan said. I have no idea how to sabotage it. Apparently, the sabotage was pretty obvious and a simple thing, Johnny said. Rudy thinks it wouldn't take a rigor to work it out, and you have a general idea about how the tricks work. What is this reorganization you're talking about, Sandra asked. Jack owned it all. Wasn't that enough for him? That was going to be part of the reveal, I told them. Jack's illness was starting to affect him, but he loved this new trick and thought it would be incredible. That made this the perfect time to relaunch the company. That's bull, Sandra said, astounding snappy. I talked to him the other day and asked him to think about making some changes. I told him that Carl and I needed to plan our future, and he told me to stay out of his business. He said he would structure things the way he wanted them. He did have his own ideas, I said, and here's what we know. I looked at Johnny, giving him the floor. The lawyer drew up papers gifting Carl and, Mil Carl and Millie with his shares. They would split the company 50-50 if they would agree to give Zelda a perpetual profit-sharing deal. You gotta be killing! <laughs> killing? You gotta be kidding! Billy left up. Jack was giving them the company? I smiled. With some stipulations. They were supposed to agree to let him produce this last show with the understanding that he'd use it to introduce Carl as the new headliner, the new Jack. I looked at Sandra. When you talked to Vaughn and your brother about stealing Jack's cast and crew, you didn't know he'd be handing it to Carl, did you? Don't be absurd, she said. Carl glared at his wife. What did you do, Sandra? When she folded her arms and gave him a sullen look, I smiled, my sweetest smile. I can tell you. She talked with Vaughn. When Stan told Sandra's brother that he wasn't the only interested party, it gave her an idea. Sandra called Vaughn and tried to work out her own deal. Sandra gave us a defiant look. I told Vaughn that if Jack didn't want to sell, he didn't need Jack. All they needed was the trick in the production team. And that's what you told Jack, isn't it? I asked her. 
When Jack told you to mind your own business, you threatened to take Carl and walk away. She looked startled. I just told him that if he wouldn't give us a stake, other people would. Carl turned to face her. Do you think I'd steal the trick from my brother and go with Vaughn? Johnny stared at the fatal trick inside. The thing is, if Sandra revealed the trick to his competitor before it was used, theft would be hard to prove, Johnny said. And a trick similar to his would be enough, especially if she had all of Jack's staff. I nodded. And she got Vaughn's people to agree in principle to the idea that if she could bring them the entire act, they would make her the new CEO of the company. I could produce a better show than he could, she said, raising her chin. But you knew Millie and Carl, at least, wouldn't go with you, I said. Unless Jack was badly injured, Johnny pointed out. He was, as Carl said, the spark plug of the operation. Everything would be in chaos. If he couldn't perform or help guide the development of the show, you had a chance to step up, to rally the others. You'd convince them that the best option was to go to work for Vaughn. Then you'd have Jack's resources to pull the show together and perform it on schedule, with you running things. So this was the future for us you were talking about, Carl asked his wife. Then he looked at me. She was ramping up the pressure. She said she was just curious about what it would take to convince me that Jack was using me. She asked me a similar question, Billy said. Me too, Millie said. She made it sound like she was just thinking out loud. That's all it was, Sandra said, backpedaling. I talked to Vaughn's people and I got the idea, but none of you wanted to stand up for yourselves. Not one of you would consider walking away. But without Jack around, I said, with his leadership gone, you'd fill the void by leading in a new direction. If he was badly hurt, Millie said, we wouldn't know where to turn. You used him. Exactly, I said. With everyone confused and disheartened, Sandra would step up with her solution, that you all quit and go to work for Vaughn's new company. She would even make it seem like you were doing it for Jack, taking the pressure off of him. But he died, Carl cried. He stood up, his body shaking. Sandra, is this true? Did you kill my brother so it would go to work for you and that damn Vaughn? And now we find out it was for nothing? That Jack was giving me what we asked for? A sudden calmness came over Sandra. Even this new plan is a reorganization that gives me nothing, she said. I can produce a better show than anyone. With this crew, I can create productions that will be amazing. But with Carl and Millie running the show, it would be a joke. So you killed him, Zelda asked. I made his stupid trick fail, she said. I didn't intend to kill him. Under the circumstances, I told her, you'll need to convince the jury of that, not us. Johnny stepped up to, to handcuff a stunned and defeated Sandra. And if anyone believes that you weren't trying to kill him, Johnny said, I've got a candlestick I'd like to sell them. As we led her to the squad car, I suggested that Johnny file our report. He was ecstatic. I've been taking careful notes, he said, and he hand up, held up his notebook and read them to me. This is the death that Jack died. This is the house that Jack bought. This is the cow with the crumpled horn that stands by the fireplace to adorn the house that Jack bought. This is the corpse all shaven and shorn that was impaled on the crumpled horn of the cow that did adorn the house that Jack bought. This is the maid and all forlorn that lived in the house that Jack bought. 
that hated the cow with the crumpled horn, that impaled the corpse all shaven and short, that found the body that called the cops, that investigated the corpse that got impaled on the horn that died in the house that Jack bought. These are the suspects that were there that day that offered the clues about the way that Jack got impaled on the crumpled horn that made the maiden all forlorn, that hated the cow that called the cops about the corpse that got impaled on the crumpled horn and died in the house that Jack bought. This is the perp that fixed the stunt that impaled Jack on the crumpled horn to steal the show all tattered and torn that made the maiden all forlorn, that called 911 about the corpse that brought the cops that investigated the death that Jack died. I had to admit he covered everything except the criminal charges that Carl and Millie later pressed against Dan Burroughs. The end. You nailed that one. It was Sandra. Yes, I did. <laughs> Good job. I did like that they still are pressing the charges against uh, Stan. Yeah. So I did a little bit of research into both Jack B. Nimble and the house that Jack bought. So the, uh, the Jack B. Nimble rhyme was first recorded in a manuscript around 1815. The song was recorded in a collection by James Orchard Hallowell in the mid-19th century that was called English Nursery Rhymes and Fairy Tales. It seems that the rhyme had two inspirations. One was an English pirate from the late 1500s named Black Jack Smat who lived in Jamaica in Port Royal. He was an infamous Pirates of the Car Caribbean or Caribbean who was notoriously smart, quick and nimble, and escaped from authorities, which was a good thing for him as those authorities eventually wanted to capture and hang him. The idea of jumping candlesticks, as it turns out, was both a form of fortune telling and a sport in England. It was said to be a signal of good luck if the jumper cleared the candle without extinguishing the flame. I have links to the sources there in the show notes. As you all heard, the story also, well, there are a couple had really incorporated quite a few Jacks, but the other nursery rhyme was the house that Jack built. Um, so this is also an English nursery rhyme. The first known printing was in 1755 in a book called Nurse True Love's New Year's Gift, or it seemed to also have the title of The Book of Books for Children. It was suspected um, that the rhyme goes back much further. The same James Orchard Hallowell suggested that the reference in the rhyme, specifically to a priest being shaven and shorn, could date it back another 200 years. There are several variations on the poem, uh, depending on the time and some, some local vernacular, but uh, here is one verse, it's the last, so it's the fully built out one. This is the horse, the, wait. This is the horse, the hound and the horn, that belonged to the farmer sowing his corn, that kept a cock that crowed in the morn, that woke the priest all shaven and shorn, that married the man all tattered and torn, that kissed the maiden all forlorn, that milked the cow with a crumpled horn, that tossed the dog, that worried the cat, that killed the rat, that ate the malt, that lay in the house that Jack built. Um, as classic as the rhyme is, it's still being drawn into modern culture. The late great Aretha Franklin put her spin on Jack in his house in 1968. Uh, she didn't she didn't write the song; she only performed it. But there are it's a, it's a pretty cool song. Uh, Metallica took it in a totally different direction in 1996, and then three films borrowed from the rhyme. And the most recent was a 2018 psychological horror film by Lars von Trier. It had 60 Rotten Tomatoes, with the consensus that said that the movie is hard to ignore and for many, just as difficult to digest. 
based on the description of it, it's not on my to-watch list. Uh, links to all of those show notes, or all of those links, including Metallica, Aretha Franklin's performance, and the 2018 movie are also in the show notes. So let's find out a little about today's author, Ted, or Ed Teja. Ed is a writer, a poet, a musician, and a world traveler. His stories and poems are about the people and places he knows and the odd corners of the world that often disappear into the margins and the amazing, often strange people he meets while moving between the cracks. Living as a boat bum in the Caribbean and on the Spanish main, he earned his living playing blues in waterfront bars, working as a deckhand for charter skippers, and freelance writing. The life brought him into contact with quirky characters and developed his appreciation for twisted stories. I always love when we have Ed stories. They're always so just totally unexpected. In Mystery Lovers, um, have you heard of Mystery, Mystery Rats Maze podcast? Recently found this one. It's done by Lori Lewis Ham in Kings River Life magazine, and it brings you short mystery stories and first chapter of mystery novels. Um, so Lori's take on it's a little bit different than ours. She does more traditional short stories. The first chapters are similar to what we do on Toe Tags, so I've really enjoyed some very cool stories there. And some writers on Mysteries to Die For also write for Mystery Rats Maze. Uh, so definitely check it out. Um, her stories are read by local actors, which gives it a totally different feel than what we do. To listen to the episodes and subscribe to the podcast, you can go to mysteryratsmaze.podbean.com. I'll put all those links in the show notes, but check them out. And now we're ready to wrap it up. Uh, please do sh support our show by subscribing and telling a mystery lover about us, giving us a five-star review, and check out our website, tgwolf.com, that's with two Fs, forward slash podcast, for links to this season's authors. Mysteries to Die For is hosted by T.G. Wolf and Jack Wolf. The Death That Jack Died was written by Ed Teha. Music and production are by Jack Wolf. Episode art is by T.G. Wolf. Join us next week for a toe tag. That's the first chapter of a fresh release in the mystery, thriller, or crime genre. And then be back in two weeks for episode five, One-Eyed Jack and the Suicide King by Erica Obey. All right, Jack, take us out. <laughs> <laughs>